So I bought a company. It was down 80% already. And my belief, my true belief was, okay, this is how you make the most money. And that same year, I looked it up. The company reported a loss of 27 million, which was in 1979, was a very massive loss. And then the company went bankrupt. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Jeroen Blockland. Jeroen, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I am. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Jeroen is long-term multi-asset investor with a long-term track record in financial markets. He worked at Rubico, the largest independent asset manager in the Netherlands for almost 20 years before launching his independent research investment research company, True Insights. This company, True Insights, offers institutional and retail clients high-quality investment research to make better informed investment decisions based on proven investment framework covering macro sentiment and valuation. Jeroen, take a moment and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Yes, well, I hope that I bring in a unique value. But uh, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, so... I have built a investment framework called Macro Sentiment and Valuation. Nothing fancy about the name, but the fanciness is, of course, in what we do. So I think that a lot of people just look at what central banks are doing or just what the economy is doing. Some look only at technical analysis or sentiment and others at valuation. But I think the power of what we do is combining the most important elements of these three pillars, Macro Sentiment and Valuation, and then try to make investment decision. And I think by doing it, by this holistic approach, the odds of getting it right increase. Still, you will get it wrong some of the time, of course, but I think this this general approach is what adds value for our clients. And is it, is it a like a quantitative framework or a qualitative quantitative framework? Or how does it work? Yeah, good question. So I would call it data-driven. So it's not quant per se, but but you will see that Behind everything that we put out, our research notes, there is a lot of data behind it. We look at long-term relationships and why should they be different this time? Because I think that's a very difficult phrase, a very dangerous phrase. Mm -hmm. So it's very much data-driven. I I love charts. You will see a lot of charts in my research. I think in the end, it's a combination of data-driven, fundamental top-down. I think that would best qualify where our multi-asset approach fits. And when, when an investor or a person who's listening to this that may not understand it completely, basically what's happening is that you're coming from a top-down perspective and the result that you're coming out with is, okay, overweight gold or underweight US treasuries or overweight emerging markets or a particular sector or commodities or how would that come out for the investor? Yeah, so basically we have three pillars. The first is what is actually a well-diversified portfolio. How do you construct that? And do you need very difficult methodologies, mean variance optimizations? No, you don't actually. It's pretty straightforward. So that's the starting point, the strategic S allocation. And then where the macro 
sentiment evaluation framework comes in is how do you use all these indicators that are out there to actually say something about the relative attractiveness of different asset classes. So, so we put them actually to work. So in the end, what you say, sometimes you will see, okay, equities are more attractive than high yield bonds or commodities. And then also depending on the amount of conviction that we have, we reflect that in the portfolio. So we say, okay, this is your strategic mix, but now add five or sometimes even 10% of equities and sell something else until market circumstances change. And that is what the macro sentiment valuation framework should pick up your portfolio again. And the third pillar is to make it as tangible as possible, especially for the retail part of the business. We end up with ETF-based model portfolios. So how do you translate these views into actual portfolios? So you will see portfolios consisting 10 or 15 ETFs, which are from the big providers. They are tradable in most areas. So you can take this as inspiration or try to copy paste it. We have some clients who try to do that. That's also very fine. So to make it as tangible as possible, we end up with these model portfolios. And where where would someone go to learn more about that? Yeah, we have a website. So it's true-insights.net. But if you Google it or Google it with my name, you will, uh, will see it. You will see some information on what we do, how we do it, what you can expect. You see some research samples, of course. We write blogs. Mm -hmm. And then on the website itself, first of all, there are four types of research. There's a daily, there's a weekly, there's a monthly. So in the daily, we can talk about everything that is going on. But also, I like to debunk sometimes the the, the narratives that are living in the market, which are not true. The weekly is, is a concise overview of what is happening in the markets this week. But then directly aimed at what does it mean for the attractiveness of these different asset classes. So I'm not a storyteller. I want to know, does this mean I have to adjust something in my portfolios? And the monthly... Yep. And the monthly, that is like the flagship. There we go. Hardcore. All the major indicators in macro sentiment evaluation I will put out. So it's like 100 charts. It's a lot Mm. of pages, but you will learn a lot how a framework works. And what do we look at? And then finally, we have portfolio changes because this, of course, is, is the proof of the pudding. Whenever we change something, we put out directly a message to our clients. This is what we do. This is why we do it. And this, these are the ETFs involved in the portfolio to implement that change in views. Mm. Okay, great. And I'll have links to that in the show notes for the people that want to check that out. You know, yeah. I heard you on the uh, episode 291 on macro voices with Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. And you talked yep. about inflation, bond yields, portfolio allocation, and Bitcoin, and yep. uh, that a lot of different stuff. But I'm just curious, before we get into the big question of my podcast, yep. what is the what is something that you've been looking at or that you've been positioning in or that what's a theme that you have that maybe other people don't know about or something that you can share with us that's a high conviction feeling or thought or you know strategy that you could share with us, something that you're seeing in the global markets? Yeah. Yeah, so so good question and actually pretty relevant because we just put out a couple of pieces based on the relative attractiveness of bonds against equities. So so what we did, we looked at what were the starting yields, so the earnings yield and the yields on high yield bonds and corporate bonds, developed market equities, and so the major asset classes back in August 2020. So this was the month when the 10-year US Treasury yield made the all-time low, the mm-hmm. lowest ever. So what were the yields back then? of equities compared to these bond asset classes. Now, you see that equities were favored, even though their yields were not that impressive, but on the bond side, it was very, very low. Now, we made a chart showing what these yields looked then 
and now. And you see that the, of course, it's no surprise, but that the yields on bonds have increased massively, whereas the yields on equities have only risen modestly. Now, if you do that in a, what you should do, risk return dimension, so you add risk. So we also determined the risk adjusted yield on all of these asset classes. You see that bonds now beat every equity asset class. And this is a crowding out effect. If you don't want to take that much risk, you can now get a 5% return or, or starting return yield on corporate bonds against almost 6% on equities, but with much less risk. And so these more defensive investors, they don't, they are not forced up the risk curve to take more risk to get return in. And I think this is a, let's say, we also do a little bit, of course, short-term technical asset allocation, but, but from a more general, the competition from bonds relative to equities has increased dramatically. And this means that a lot of investors not willing to take risk don't have to take risk anymore. And that, of course, reduces the overall demand for equities. It does not mean that equities cannot outperform, but they need very favorable conditions, circumstances to continue so. Now, and if you think that the recession is coming or if you think that earnings will fall, that of course is a little bit difficult to reconcile. Eh? So that is also why I'm a little bit more cautious on everything that is equity related versus what is bond related. Eh? So, so that is, that is, I think, a very interesting, the more general concept of relative competition. Eh? So bonds are more attractive and they are out competing equities on the this risk-adjusted yield approach. Yeah, so it's a great point that, you know, everybody was chasing yield, you know, when interest rates were so low and they were forced into equities, they were forced yes. into some kind of creative stuff. And now they can kind of sit happily in a 5% corporate bond and not be forced, as you say. So that's a, that's great a great point. And it means that the demand, the shifting of those assets into equities may not be happening. And what do you think about the next, I don't know, let's say 12 months, would that be the, a good trade for the next 12 months? Or is that only something that you think is happening on a short-term basis? This is a very interesting dynamic what is going on now, eh? because almost everybody thought equities would struggle in the first half and then it would get better in the second half. But now with the Federal Reserve, inflation being sticky, you see this, this dynamic is changing because Federal Reserve and other central banks are aiming to extend this tightening cycle. And, so, so, and that makes it a little bit more easy for me. I think that I put out this chart. So the amount of inflows from retail investors into US stocks is the highest on record. If you look at US retail sales, so the real economy, they rose 3% in January, the highest in almost two years. So apparently we have to take into account that this massive rise in bond yields has not hit either financial markets or risky assets or the real economy. Yeah, so, and of course we are looking at uh, low savings ratios and, and credit card debt, which is ballooning. But in overall, you still see that this this whole yield, the sensitivity of rising yields is either less than we expect, but if you look at debt to GDP ratios, that's, that is something that is not very logical. So this means most likely that the hard part still has to come. Mm. And I think that for me is a very clear starting point that at this point you should at least not be overweight risky assets yet because the odds that we will seek new lows or go down 10% or whatever is still apparent unless you believe that this whole recession or the downturn is already behind us. And there are also some indicators that indicate that. But if you look at very 
top down, very high over. Yeah, so so both the retail economy is not collapsing because of higher yields. The housing market is, yeah, but that's always the, the, the first. It's a leading indicator. But also the financial markets are not collapsing because of these higher yields. That's strange unless you believe that interest rate sensitivity of all of these areas is less than than before. Nah, that I don't think so. So that makes me think that on a 12-month basis, yeah, some some struggle is still ahead of us. And I should note that we're talking on February 23rd, 2023, just for the listeners in case someone stumbles upon yeah. this later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just one last question for me, given that you're in Europe. Obviously, lately we've seen some momentum coming into European markets. And there's people that are thinking, ah, oh, the worst is over. Maybe oil prices aren't going to be that high or gas prices, you know, not going to have a problem. Maybe China reopening or that type of thing. And yep. so you've got this dichotomy where you get people thinking, well, we may be through the worst. And then you have people that say, well, we're going to have a recession. I mean, yep. it's a delayed impact of this type of interest rate rises and all of that stuff. And if you look at the inverted yield curve in the U.S., at least it says, yeah, it's mid-2023. Just curious, what's your take on Are we? what's the likelihood that we're going to be going into a recession in Europe in particular this year? Yep. So this year, that's that's a little bit difficult now. So I think there will be a recession. But what, of course, when you let's look at the final quarter of last year, when natural gas prices spiked and, and we were thinking about the shortages, basically every investor thought Europe was doomed, really yeah. doomed. And, and you have this. Huh? So Germany's uh, business model is broken because they use cheap gas for industrial production, whatever. And actually, I saw a very interesting chart yesterday showing that on average in Europe, the use of natural gas is 20% less than average, but industrial production is almost flat. So it's not growing anymore, but it's not it has not collapsed. And I think the whole idea that Europe is not going down the drain because of this whole energy-related uh, crisis has led to a massive relief rally. Because if German manufacturers cannot produce anymore, they go out of business, of course. Huh? So, so I think... Some anxiety about these companies in Europe was 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 in place was to mm. think, but you see now with this massive decline in all these energy prices that it's Armageddon is not coming, and I think mm. that is why equities have done so well in in Europe. I also some of that risk premium should be priced out. I understand, yep. but going forward, and that is exactly what you mentioned. Look at the PMI manufacturing against the PMI services. It, it really is two worlds. The one is above 50 and is doing pretty okay. The other is declining. In Germany, it was worse than expected. And until, let's say, COVID, we say, okay, we always look at the manufacturing part more, but because even though that is a smaller part of the economy, it does has more sensitivity. It's more about the economic cycle. But now you have a further push since COVID that the services industry is maybe now becoming the leading indicator. We don't know yet. And that is up. So also for central banks, that will be interesting. Is this recession going to happen or not? Now, my idea is exactly what you said. I think there's some kind of delayed effect because of the massive swings that we have seen in these energy prices on top of what we already seen in labor markets around the world. There is some something has changed because they are extremely tight everywhere. Now, and I think this will be a delayed. And this is also why if you mentioned 2023, I'm not sure if that is 2022 anymore. Could well be, but we could also that this whole thing is delayed in 2024. That would not mean that things like the yield curve is now a bad forecaster, because if you look at the historical period between 
the inversion and the start of recession, 2024 would still fit perfectly. So, mm-hmm. so I, I'm very much on the delayed part. I think earnings will go down. The interesting thing is, of course, I'm not a big believer in that it should be extremely severe because central banks have, have much more room to act now because because of this tightening cycle. So so I think that is very interesting. But but yeah, I'm still on the yeah, there will be a significant downturn, perhaps a recession path. Yes. Fantastic. Well, and that's a lot of great, valuable discussion for my audience, and we appreciate it. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, I have two worst investments. But the first thing I think a lot of people when thinking about a worst investment is about a specific company losing all of your money. So so I went back in the very early days. And that is also when I knew nothing about investing. At least I did not have any investment framework. So we talked about the, the value of an investment framework. I learned, I learned. But yeah, there was this company called Tulip Computers. It was a Dutch company. It was a big company because I looked it up at its highs. It was the second biggest seller of PCs next to IBM in the Netherlands. So it was big. So what I did... I think I was 19 or something, but I did know nothing about the company. I understand what they did, but that was it. And then I looked in the newspaper because back then everything was in the newspaper. And then I ranked the 12-month performance from high to low. And I thought, <laughs> I thought I had never heard of the factor premium momentum, eh? never momentum in markets. It works. I, I've never heard of it. So I bought a company that I understood. Eh? There's uh, no, no fundamental analysis ever. It had the lowest. So it was, it was down 80% already from a 52 week perspective. And my belief, my true belief was, okay, this is how you make the most money. And that same year, I looked it up, the company reported a loss of 27 million, which was in 1979, was a a very massive loss. And then the company went bankrupt or some kind of construction, I don't know. What is interesting that a couple of years later, they bought Commodore, the the game console, Commodore 64, right? But that was one of my uh, more famous, so no due diligence, no understanding of fundamentals, no understanding of momentum, just buy what is down the most. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that tendency. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the next question is what lessons did you learn? Yeah, so I'm a multi-investor now. Eh? So I know a lot about diversification and, and things like that and top down. But I really, if I sometimes look at podcast or where also part of the topics concern individual companies... I think that 90% of the investing population does not know what the actual outlook for a company is, even if they're experienced in reading a balance sheet, for example. But most of the time you hear, yes, but the company is saying this. And then a a couple of months later, yes, but the factory they're building, is going to be twice as expensive. Yeah, uh, now they have to do a share issuance or whatever. I think investing in a couple of companies based on their fundamentals, because that is what you should do, is really, really difficult for a lot of investors. So I'm not saying you should not do it. But again, yeah, there has to be some kind of diversification. I I left it because I'm not an expert in this, but I also think it's really difficult, especially as a retail investor, to get an edge. How do you do that? It's interesting because um, one of the things I was thinking about what you said is that you know, it's a great point that 90% of investors don't really know what the outlook for a company is. And I would say the companies don't know the outlook too. I teach a course called the Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp and the students feel really comfortable 
plugging in the assumptions that management gives them in their forward guidance. That's what I mean. Yeah. And they look at that yeah, and yeah, they yeah, think, yeah. yeah. And I try yeah. to, you know, teach them that, you know, it's it's hard. It's just everything yeah. is constantly moving. And so that's a great yeah. lesson for particularly for beginners who think that because when you see people on CNBC and you hear professionals and you hear everybody talking, you think, wow, these guys really know. But the fact yeah. is, is that we're all guessing to a certain extent. And we understand that to a point where we know to reduce risk. And that's part yeah. of the diversification, you know, concept yes. that you mentioned. Yeah. Let me let me ask you, based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, go back to your early self when you did this. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, so first diversification. Yeah, so And somehow incorporate the uncertainty that is around it. And it, this can be by buying more companies. This can be by investing less there are all all kinds of of ways you can you can do that to limit your risk. I think that is the uh, yeah, and have some understanding. So so this is of course about company fundamentals. But then I also said that the company that I bought was down eighty percent. Mm. Be aware that a sector momentum. For example, if you look at technology stocks, they are very much driven by a a deep rooted belief in that all of these stocks, not one of them, but all of these stocks can grow until oblivion. And I think that is also eh, the characteristics of the, the sector of the team or whatever you are investing in allow for uncertainty. And if you want to do it with uncertainty, yeah, you have to find another, a couple of other companies that do basically the same thing and then spread that risk, of course. And what's a, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners, either of your own or something else? To use, yeah, I mean uh, something yeah. that can help people, you know, in investing. I think uh, so. I use a Bloomberg, but yep. that of course is very expensive. But I must say, if you follow, so for me, Twitter is also it's sometimes really a, a drag and and all these bots. But if you follow the right people, and there are a lot of people. So for some people, that is technical analysis. There, there are on Twitter is is a massive source of useful information. It does like. Take a little bit of time to get the right people on your list. But yeah, that is trial and error, of course. But, but I think you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So so try to, to use the information and the research that is already done by others. And then try to determine if you need additional research by yourself or if that is enough. So so use a lot of what others are doing. Uh, that mm -hmm. is that you don't have to do anything from you don't have to build a spreadsheet if you don't want to, but you can you can loan a lot of what others are doing. Yeah. Twitter's a great recommendation. I think that's spending time on there following the right people and the things that they write, very valuable. Yep. All right. It takes last... time and you will, yep. yeah. And but, but but eventually you will get a source, a, a real-time source of research that will help you with your investment decisions. Yep. Yes. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Now I started a new business, and uh, I can tell you that uh, that uh, requires quite a bit of work. And uh, so, so yes, of course, I would to like to make that a success. And that means that the quality of my research should be really high. I'm confident it is. But also, I think that the ways that I can disclose this research or my uh, insights, that is something that I will build on in the next 12 months. And so we have the website, but also doing some videos, Twitter, of course, uh, podcast like with you. So that would be for the next, uh, so to, to grow the knowledge part of the business so that more people have access to it. That is, I think, uh, my main goal. 
Great goal. And we'll have links to all of your different stuff in the show notes. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you're not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Yarun, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, continue investing because in the end it will work. And thank you for uh, having me. It was nice. We appreciate it. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.